Blog Talk Radio. You're invited to experience online healing retreats brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. These magical online gatherings give you valuable insights, exercises, and channeled information on the great shift of the ages. Visit AcousticHealth.com and click on Online Retreats or check out our retreat archive and download the recording. Life-changing online retreats by AcousticHealth.com Another healing conversation brought to you by AcousticHealth.com. I'm Loren Gailey, and today I am very thrilled to present this healing conversation on Lemuria. My guest today is Frank Joseph, author of The Lost Civilization of Lemuria and others. He's also the editor of Ancient American Magazine available at ancientamerican.com. Thank you so much for joining us on Healing Conversations, Frank Joseph. Well, the pleasure is all mine. I'm very glad to be here. This book of yours, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria, has taken you by surprise. You haven't promoted it that much, but tell us about that. The interest in The Lost Civilization of Lemuria really surprised me. Um, I spent, it must be over 10 years, I guess, researching that book. I traveled around the world. I traveled to the Pacific and so forth, gathering material. I was very interested in the subject. And it took me, of course, a long while to write it. And when I completed it, I was very happy with uh, the completed work. But the thought struck me, uh, this book will never get published. Nobody will ever read it because who knows about Lemuria? They've ever heard about Atlantis and Troy and places like that, but nobody's ever heard about Lemuria. They don't know what that is. And I voiced my concerns to my wife, Laura, and she said, yeah, you know, you're right. Nobody's going to read this book. So I fielded the book anyway. I did pick up a nice publisher, Barron Company, at Inner Traditions. They did a fine job. And the book took off. I couldn't believe it. It's in foreign editions in Russia and in uh, Bulgaria and places like that. And I understand that the, the French are now interested in doing it. But beyond that, uh, which is a surprise, I mean, who who in Russia knows about Lemuria? But apparently they do. But I get more letters, uh, phone interviews like this one, coming from out of the blue about Lemuria than anything else I've written. I've written over 20 books and about all kinds of things, but nothing has generated the consistent uh, interest in Lemuria. I mean, I just got a letter the other day from a wonderful scholar in in India, wrote me a long, very erudite letter about Lemuria. And nobody trashes the idea that, oh, Lemuria is this fantasy made up stuff. People claim to have really solid information this place really existed, or they 
they have dreams about it, they gravitate towards it, it feels very real to them. It's very surprising. So I don't think that has anything to do with me or my book. I just think the Lemuria, getting the name out there, is resonating with something uh, archetypal in people. I really feel that way, having had these experiences. Most listeners of this show are going to know, just by being here today, listening to the program, what Lemuria is. But for those who don't know what Lemuria is, it is a continent from the Pacific. I hope you'll explain some of your stories or confirmation of how it was destroyed. There's really not too much evidence that a large continent actually existed in the Pacific, although there is some indication that perhaps there was. But more likely, it's better to think about Lemuria as a people or a culture that spread over archipelagos, which are lines of islands that threaded their way across the central and eastern Pacific. And these islands, many of them still exist. Some went under the sea. What happened to Lemuria, what happened to the people of Lemuria, is they experienced something very similar to what we saw last March in which an enormous tsunami reached its height at 130-some feet, washed over northeastern Japan, and killed a minimum of about 25,000 people, and did, of course, enormous damage. Japan survived being what Japan is. But an event similar to this took place much further back into the past, in which a tsunami, which is hard to imagine, a tsunami between four and 700 feet high, washed over the Pacific. This is now known to have actually taken place. The physical evidence has been found in beach sand at extremely high levels on some of the, well, the Hawaiian islands themselves. And now geophysicists know for a fact that there were several incidents in the ancient past in which tsunamis of incredible height and power surged across the Pacific at 500 miles an hour. Now, there's nothing alive that could have survived such a catastrophe. And that really is the was the final last act of Lemuria, a civilization that had lasted longer than any other organized society in human history and may have been, from certain points of view, the most advanced, the most sophisticated society that human beings ever achieved. And that is basically what we're, we're talking about. It brings to mind a couple questions. So the first one is, when you speak of it as being the most advanced, what does that mean? Is that from a spiritual level of love and cooperation? but yet on a technological level as well, because it's what we see scattered on these uh, remnant islands across the Pacific. Both, because their technology arose from spiritual adeptness. These were people who, were, who left a legacy of spiritual greatness, which has contributed significantly to Tibetan Buddhism and the spiritual traditions of people all around the Pacific Rim from Tibet, which is not the Pacific Rim, admittedly beyond that, from Tibet all the way uh, to coastal uh, South America and the Inca traditions. And it was from this spiritual, these spiritual experiences and as a people that arose a technology 
which was parallel to ours but totally different because the Lemurians, it would appear, had as the basis of their spiritual points of view and their national ethic that God expresses his will through natural law. And therefore, if a society lives in close cooperation with natural law, it is living the will of God. And by understanding that basic principle, they evolved and achieved things which are absolutely mind-blowing. Some of the things that they achieved, and this is something that we understand today but have not yet really achieved yet, is weather modification. Well, you mentioned uh, before we get on the air that you would visit a place called Nanmadol. Nanmadol is one of the most, possibly the most remote spot on Earth. It's in Macronesia. And it has, uh, Nanmadol means the spaces between. It's actually an artificial island was made in prehistory by supposedly an unknown people. Archaeologists cannot define who made this tremendous achievement of the sea, just off the northern end of another island called Ponap, sometimes pronounced Ponape. And Nanmadol, this artificial island built on a coral reef, a submerged coral reef, has tunnels that go under the sea to chambers, man-made chambers, man-made tunnels. Most importantly, the island is made up of 280 billion tons, 280 billion tons of magnetized basalt. And the source for this magnetized basalt has never been found. And the magnetized basalt has been arranged into very strange uh, structures, square structures, bear no resemblance to anything else in the world. But in my book, I explain it in greater detail than I have time to explain here. Nanmadol is part of a system which was used to diffuse typhoons. That area of the world was and is the cradle of typhoons, which are caused when cold air hits the surface of the warm water and creates a vortex resulting in typhoon or hurricane activity. Highly destructive, of course. And mostly these typhoons slam into the Philippines, especially Luzon. Nanmadol acting as a, a degaussing device, just at the point where the typhoon passes over, diffuses the typhoon, turns it into a rainstorm. And why would they want to do that? Why would they want to save the Philippines, which is over 300,000 no, 300, of miles away? It's in a direct line. Why would they do that? And they did it because on Luzon, you find another stupendous ancient work. They're called the Banawi Rice Fields. The Banawi Rice Fields represent the largest food factory ever made on Earth, ever, bigger than anything today. It is an entire canyon that has been terraformed in the ancient past to produce phenomenal amounts of food for many millions of people. It's no longer in operation, mostly. It's in a ruinous condition, but it's preserved. It's one of UNESCO's preserved World Heritage Sites. Again, archaeologists don't have a clue who made this place, or exactly when, although they know it's at least 2,000 years ago, certainly much older than that. And in order to save the Banaui rice fields in Luzon and the Philippines, you had to protect it from typhoons, from hurricanes. 
And that's exactly what nanmadol does. So in other words, what we're talking about is a technology which we can grasp and understand but not have but have not yet duplicated. And that is a weather modification technology that prevented the development of typhoons and allowed the production of food on this massive scale that would have fed the entire uh, Southeast Asia and everything in that area, which indicates that at one time there was an enormous population there that had to be fed by some civilization. And that civilization is enshrined and preserved primarily, although not exclusively, in the traditions of native peoples around the world, literally around the world, not just around the Pacific. The name Lemuria that we have today is Roman, comes from ancient Rome. It is a Latin name. The Romans themselves had a ceremony, a series of ceremonies they refer to as the Lemuria, and it took place annually in the spring and March to commemorate the, the deaths, the loss of the Lemurians. And that's where our version, that's where the European name comes from. Originally it was called probably Mu or something like that. It was referred to by different names by different peoples. But Lemuria is not just something that a name that was channeled or made up or something. The ancient Romans, at the height of their high civilization, honored and venerated the memory of lost Lemuria. And even in your book, it describes these islands that are scattered across the Pacific, like Nanmadal. Yes, I've been there. And when I look over in the at the monuments, say, in photographs of Peru, I see similar structures. It fascinates me because the locals on Ponape have no idea how Nanmadal got there. It precedes their historical ancestry records. They even are frightened to spend the night in this, overnight in this Nanmadal structure because people have died. They don't come out alive. That's right. And the reason uh, why they have this fear is legitimate. There is a phenomenon you may have heard of when you were there. Um, it's called the blue light phenomenon or ghost light phenomenon. Uh, it has been observed by numerous persons, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's been photographed, in which visitors to Nanmadal occasionally, not, not that often, but uh, from time to time, see a light dancing amongst the ruins. Usually it's blue, sometimes it's white. And that person supposedly who hang around too long have sometimes been struck by this light and killed. What this light is, is the the remnant effect of what Nanmadal used to be. It used to be an electromagnetic uh, center. It, it would interact with the forces of a typhoon, as I said, to degauss it, to, it, it, to short it out, literally short it out. An enormous electrical bolt would have been observed in the ancient past rising between Nanmadol and the formation of a typhoon. Now, even though that place is in ruins today, that basalt is still there mostly. It's just, it's collapsing. It's being destroyed by the jungle, unfortunately. But that's electrical properties are still in existence there. And if you look at the Pacific as a whole, if you look at it from space, and you were to see these various islands like Nanmadol and Tahiti and Hawaii, these are well-known islands, 
you would see on many of these islands the remains of enormous megalithic structures, huge structures, walls, obelisks, stone gates, uh, the latte stones that you mentioned, these very bizarre mushroom-shaped stones, and they all belong to this former culture. These are the ruins of Lemuria that are spread across the Pacific, and the native peoples, they either have no clue where these came from, they make no claim to have built them themselves, or else they have traditions of magicians or sorcerers who came across the sea and through their, their great magic, or what we would call technology, were responsible for building these structures. So Mu's Lemuria still exists in a ruinous state on many of these islands. As I, I said, the Lemurians, so the best way to understand Lemuria is as a people, as a culture spread over the Pacific, and they bequeathed themselves to these other peoples and intermarried with them and helped to form uh, their rich cultures. And even this great flood, this big tsunami, it is mentioned in religious texts all across the planet. There is in Hawaii something called the Kumulipu. The, interesting, the name Mu involved in that Kumulipu. The Kumulipu is a very long uh, recitation that initiates still give it is a recitation of the genealogy of all of the Hawaiian kings. And the first time that it was presented to a foreigner was uh, Captain Cook back in the 18th century. And the Kamuli Poo, which has been translated, and you can you can get a copy from Interlibrary Loan so in, enshrined in the Bishop Museum in Hawaii, talks about the origin of the kings. How at one time, at the very before the beginning of their history, what they describe as a warrior wave, a warrior wave swept across the sea and destroyed a former high kingdom, and that most of the people on this kingdom perished, but a few survived, and they formed the kernel of the royal houses of the Hawaiian Islands. That's in the Kamulipu. That is by no means the only tradition of a tsunami, a, a huge wave that surged across the Pacific. You see the same story at Easter Island, strangely enough. Uh, you see it amongst the Tahitians. All the way up through the Aleutian Islands, there are these native traditions of this former, high, beautiful kingdom. Even as far as, as Thailand, when I visited Thailand and went to Bangkok specifically to see the Lak Muang, and there's the name again, Mu, they refer to it as the Lak Muang. The Lak Muang is this, the very absolute center of Bangkok. This little, beautiful little shrine. And in this shrine is the Lak Muang. It is a golden pillar. Actually, it's a stone pillar that is covered entirely with gold leaf. It's highly venerated. It is the sacred center of Bangkok and Thailand. And the reason why is because this stone pillar, the original stone pillar, was brought from the Temple of Lemuria by survivors of that catastrophe and brought to Thailand to recreate life, civilized life in Thailand. That original pillar was lost with the fall of Ayutthaya, the original capital of Thailand, and the Lak Mawang today is a faithful reproduction of the pillar that was brought by the survivors of Lemuria. So 
it's an amazing story that you you see. These are in the, rooted deeply in the traditions of native peoples uh, everywhere, and just to collect them. Uh, is like picking up pieces to this puzzle that begins to form in the mind when you finally realize that this great society, a gentle society, was a a, uh, a non-militaristic society, it had no armies, had no navies. It did appear to have a kind of a coast guard. Beyond that, there are traditions of that. But these were a, a completely non-militaristic people. They had no indefinite idea of progress as we do. Their civilization did not go through cycles of uh, greatness, decline, death, and renewal. It was consistent without being static. Uh, it's a remarkable civilization. You know, in the history of so many peoples, they talk about a former golden age. I believe Lemuria represented that golden age, one of the golden ages that human beings did go through. And it's a, a, just a remarkable story that seems to still resonate in the consciousness of people. And even more so coming out of it, I know um, several people that I know in my life are going towards that Buddhist path. And when you speak of that non-militaristic, peaceful society, it brings to mind the Buddhists. And you've mentioned that Lemuria was a spiritual legacy that led to Tibetan Buddhism. Isn't that where Church Ward met a Rishi in India? So India, these ancient civilizations as we know them today of Tibetan Buddhism and in India and even Hindu, they spoke of Lemuria. That is absolutely correct. James Churchward was a colonel in the British Army in the 1870s, and he had no particular interest in uh, ancient history. He was enlisted by the British Army to assist in a flood relief that was taking place at that time. He did a very good job of it, and by that time, he had taken an interest in local Indian history, that's about all, and in thanks for his work, um, an Indian rishi, which is a kind of a teacher, a holy teacher, said, well, uh, Colonel, uh, I'd like to express my gratitude to you for helping uh, save so many of my people in this flood relief. Uh, I'll show you some uh, secret records in our monastery that were, are not shown to outsiders, but we think that you should see them. We have to give you something, and we have nothing to give except our, our own heritage. And so these tablets were translated for uh, Colonel Churchward. And the reason why these tablets were selected to him is because he had saved this section of India, Brahmaputra, from major flooding. And so they said, well, we know of another flood, a, a, ter a more terrible flood, and it is enshrined in our records, and they share this information with him. And he was so fascinated that for about three or five years, and that's all he did, is that he, he focused entirely on the translation of these records, and that formed the basis for his series of books about the lost civilization of Mu. And you mentioned the Tibetan Buddhists. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Every people have a kind of a national ethic. Um, the American dream, for example, 
the Tibetans, they have a, a completely different dream. Their dream is not money or material success. Their dream is liberation from samsara, which is the cycles of uh, reincarnation. So they try to live uh, lives of, of holiness. That, I find, is very similar to the Lemurians. Everything I've learned about them, they appear to be, the closest I can associate them with are today's Tibetan Buddhists, except there's an emphasis with them on, on the real arts of civilization, on, on progress in the sense of the, the healing arts of civilization, not the killing arts of civilization. They would have not been impressed with our atomic bomb or our capacity to murder millions of our, our fellow human beings. Um, but they would have been impressed and would have understand, would have understood things like our stem cell research. That they would have appreciated. Um, these were people who were involved in the civilized arts and not in the arts of uh, mass murder, which they would have considered the savage arts. They would not have really considered much of a difference between a blowgun and an atomic bomb. They would have despised both of them. And as a consequence, the Lemurians had an extremely long uh, tenure in this life. Their civilization goes back. I've only just recently learned this uh, in my other work I'm doing on, on another project, uh, that the Lemurian civilization goes back to about 75,000 years ago. That is astounding. I never thought I'd make a statement like that, but I feel very confident that that civilization goes back 75 to 80,000 years ago. And I was not able to answer that question in my book, The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. People asked me, how old is Lemuria? And I said, I had no idea at the time. I knew it was old. But this civilization began to coalesce when modern human beings began to form, began to evolve. That's how old this civilization was. We're speaking with Frank Joseph on Lemuria, and we'll be back in just a moment. Enjoy a free meditation download on how to activate 42 new chakra systems available to us now. Visit AcousticHealth.com and click on Meditations. That's AcousticHealth.com. Thank you and enjoy. And we're back on Healing Conversations with Frank Joseph. Frank, how can people get access to your book? Well, it's called The Lost Civilization of Lemuria. And they can do it by dialing a toll-free telephone number 24 hours a day. It's one 494 And they take all kinds of credit card orders at that. Or they can order it directly from me. Uh, the fellow that takes care of that for me, his name is Wayne. And his email address is Wayne, W-A-Y-N-E, at ancientamerican.com. Are you given any information from the people who've written in? I have read in some Hindu books on the island of Kauai is a Hindu temple and the Swami, Mm -hmm. he wrote a book that said we step down as a vibration. We come from the sun and we step down in density. And at first we were given the first beings coming down into the lower densities were given ambrosia and fruit and flowers for sustaining and and building this carbon body. Are you given any information about the origin of humans on Lemuria? Yes, uh, not not quite as as beautiful as that. Um, 
My take is um, uh, far more, I guess, down to earth, uh, but not necessarily more correct than that. It doesn't take the, the spiritual aspect into consideration to that degree. My, the reason why I said that I believe that Lemuria began 75 to 80,000 years ago, it's an unthinkable long time ago, was because of a historic event that took place in Indonesia, and that is the eruption of a volcano called Mount Toba. Mount Toba is the largest, the greatest volcanic eruption that has ever taken place in human history one of the largest volcanic eruptions in the Earth's history. It was absolutely beyond the, our scope to understand. It makes Mount St. Helens uh, look like a hiccup by comparison. Mm -hmm. And when Mount Toba exploded, it totally altered the climate of the Earth. The entire earthly climate was, was drastically affected. Human beings at that time, we now know this through DNA, Human beings at that time numbered about 2 million on the, on the earth. Now, when I say human beings, I'm not talking about entirely modern human beings. At that time, we had variations of Homo erectus. They were human, to be sure, but uh, they looked rather different than ourselves, and they were not fully developed modern human beings. And there were about 2 million on the earth at that time when Mount Toba exploded. When Mount Toba got done, human population had been reduced to 2,000 adults. 2,000. Wow. That means that we came within a hair's breadth of extinction. Mm -hmm. Out of those 2,000, this is now understood through the DNA uh, examination of the human genome. That's known. That's accepted. There's still some debate about it, but the general scientific consensus now is, yes, that there were about 2,000, no more than 5,000 out of 2 million. Yeah. But that was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Because until that time, we were just Homo erectus, and we, it looked, and we were around as Homo erectus for a long time. We were in a, stuck on a kind of a evolutionary merry-go-round. But because of that tremendous catastrophe, that natural catastrophe that happened with Mount Toba, our ancestors were faced with either adapting successfully or dying. Most of us died. But those 2,000 that survived, that were able to adapt, were the best, the hardest, the most ingenious. And it is from that kernel of 2,000 survivors, the best and the toughest, that modern human beings evolved. Now, because this took place in Indonesia, the people that lived in that immediate area were mostly killed, of course, but they, the survivors spread in various directions, and the, the closest places to spread from Indonesia were through the Pacific. And you see parallel on the islands in the periphery of Indonesia and beyond in the Western Pacific, the beginnings of human society, early, very early society. And what I'm trying to do now is trace these early beginnings of the very first beginnings of human, modern human beings into the society which later became Lemuria. It was a slow, long process. It wasn't anything overnight. 
But that is the, those are the roots of, of Lemuria. In that horrific catastrophe that took place at Mount Toba 75 to 80,000 years ago. And over time, over many generations, modern human beings evolved from this event. Lemuria, then, is, if you want to make a parallel, is the Garden of Eden. That is where human beings first emerged. That is where the biblical idea of human beings living in a state of nature, in a beautiful surroundings, uh, emerged from, from chaos. <laughs> Your story is confirmed by a friend of mine, a colleague from 18 years ago on the island of Guam. I was a reporter on Guam. And at the time, this person is no longer with us, Marvin Goolsby, with the University of Guam, was conducting research that basically said the beginnings of modern human beings come from Indonesia. And at the time, I was told not to do the story and not to continue discussions with Marvin Goolsby as a reporter. And so to hear you speak of this 18 years later is profound for me, and it's confirmation of the truth that Marvin was trying to get out to the world. It's profound for me, too. I share that feeling with you, because here this fellow that you knew so long ago and I are coming from different places. We don't know each other, and yet we meet in Indonesia, as it were. So the civilization of Lemuria became a beautiful place to live, was peaceful, loving, was very good on the technology. Yet we also know from the temple structures around the Pacific that they were advanced in their temples. What are your thoughts on Cambodia, Angkor Wat? Oh, that's that's wonderful. Um, the Cambodians were really unknown to me until I moved to the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I worked for a little newspaper called Asian Pages. And occasionally I was given assignments uh, to cover the Cambodian community. Uh, it, they have a somewhat sizable community there. And I attended one of their, or I attended one of their uh, New Year's ceremonies, New Year's Day ceremonies. And for their ceremonies, they had different traditional dances and songs. Very beautiful, wonderful, all but they were all different. And then they announced they were going to do their oldest uh, ceremony, their oldest song, their oldest dance they had. And they came out in these traditional costumes. And I was amazed because I had only a couple of years before returned from the Pacific. And I would have sworn, looking at this ceremony, that it was something you would have seen on the islands of Hawaii, um, or certainly anywhere in, the, in Polynesia. The, 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 the gestures of the dancers, their costumes, even the, the rhythm of their chants was overwhelmingly Polynesian, with this difference that they wore headbands uh, that mimicked the sun, and that they used their their hand gestures often uh, towards the sun and uh, for the the former land that they came from, their ancestors came from, which and they would pretend to cry. They have put their fingers by their eyes because that 
that land is, is lost in the sea. I thought, holy buckets. This is Cambodia, and they're talking about ancestry in a sunken island. Uh, I later learned that one of their stories is very similar to the same story I learned elsewhere, that Cambodia arose from the sea uh, when their island sank into the sea at the same time. Uh, it's just it's remarkable. Um, so I believe that, that the Cambodians most definitely have this tradition uh, not, not just tradition. I think through, the, through their their blood flows, the part of the blood of, of Lemuria. I think that the genetic heritage all these people share uh, comes from from Lemuria. Absolutely. And if you see the images in the temple, the apsaras that are carved into every inch of the walls on the temples in Angkor Wat and all the temples around, to me that feels like Lemuria. Have you seen those? I, I have. I've not been to Angkor Wat because uh, when I went to Thailand, my next stop was supposed to be Cambodia. All my friends in Thailand urged me most strenuously, do not go to Cambodia. It was way too dangerous. This was back 1994. I just went on the advice of uh, my friends in Thailand, and they just said we would not go there. Now let's talk about the sun. We mentioned that there's Hindu texts that describe we come from the sun, and that was the origin of Lemuria. We see the temple of the sun in Bolivia and the Peruvian connection to Lemuria. I believe that the Lemurians and uh, their descendants in South America did not worship the sun, per se. I, I think what they were really worshiping in an esoteric sense here, was light. I think they regarded light as truly symbolic of everything that they were and were to become. Enlightenment, darkness symbolizes fear and ignorance. Enlightenment, uh, all these things seem to revolve around them having been light worshippers. Not in the literal sense, but in the sense that this is, you have to live a, a life of enlightenment. That seems to be their, their core idea. Now, I did get a chance to visit uh, quite a few places in South America. I was lucky for that. Not that they're much safer, by the way. Uh, and I did go to Lake Titicaca, and I did go to, uh, Tijuana, uh, to uh, Tijuanaco. Tijuanaco is this incredible, huge uh, city, ceremonial city, over 12,000 feet high above sea level. You can hardly breathe when you get to that area, and yet someone was hefting uh, stones of many tons and putting them in perfect alignment with each other. And there you see something at in uh, Tijuanaco, uh, outside of Lake Titicaca, which is this great andesite gate. It's a huge gate uh, made out of a solid piece of andesite, which is one of the most dense uh, forms of stone available in the Andes, beautifully crafted, and it's called the Gateway of the Sun. That's because it is oriented specifically to the uh, winter sun, sunrise of the winter solstice. The sun appears through its gateway. And at the top of the gate is a representation of uh, the weeping god, or the staff god. He's holding uh, staffs in either hands, and uh, tears are streaming from his eyes. 
the reason why he's portrayed this way is because uh, the tears represent compassion for uh, humankind, and the tears represented the rain, which allowed humankind to uh, grow crops and so forth, and to avoid drought. Well, this gateway of the sun, which you see up there high in the mountains of uh, Peru, of Bolivia, is um, fundamentally similar to gateways that you find across the Pacific. And one is called the Burden of Maui, which is this magnificent uh, gate, which is also oriented to uh, solar phenomena. And in both places, both in Bolivia and throughout the Pacific, you have these traditions of these highly civilized people who were light worshippers and erected monuments uh, to coordinate themselves with the positions of the sun. So there are these parallels that you find all across thousands and thousands of miles. And although mainstream archaeologists avoid these questions, as you were told to avoid these questions, they nonetheless exist. And for independent researchers like ourselves, uh, we know that they're valid. So when we talk about these huge stone structures, are you saying that there's evidence that there's levitation of stones through technology like mental thought or sound vibration? Well, let me just give you this as an example. On the other side of the world, in France, on the northwest coast of France, in Brittany, there is a stone which is called Ergras, E-R-G-R-A-H. And this stone weighs 355 tons. And 6,800 years ago, that's a long time ago, 4,800 B.C., Somebody moved this stone over six miles. The stone is 70 feet long. And when they moved it from this quarry over six miles to the edge of the, close to the edge of the ocean, they set it upright and they oriented this stone, 655 tons, with astronomical precision to something called the um, metonic cycle. In other words, this is a lunar cycle. So this stone weighs 355 tons, 67.7 feet long, was erected with astronomical precision 6,800 years ago and stood all the way from that time until the early 18th century when an earthquake toppled it over. And you can go visit this stone today. It's broken into four pieces. And it was so tall that it could be seen uh, 12 miles out to sea. Now, what kind of technology could people have possessed in pre-literate times that could have first of all moved this stone, 355 tons, over six miles, and then set it up with such precision? You're not going to do that with ropes. Imagine, imagine you're going to a construction engineering uh, leader today and saying, well, I want you to move this 355-ton stone six miles, and I want you to set it 70 feet long, and I want you to set it up with mathematical precision. I mean, I guess you could do it today, but... And let's say as a, as a condition of that, you can't use any machinery. <laughs> that stone is the third largest stone 
that has ever been moved on Earth. There have been two others that have been that are larger that have been moved without machinery. One, by the way, is in uh, in Jerusalem. Strangely enough, that's larger, and the other one is in Russia that was moved by Catherine the Great. But nonetheless, somebody in Stone Age times was able to move this stone. How is that possible? They didn't have machinery. They did not have anything close to what we have today. So. Anything you want to come up with, levitation or anything else, is totally acceptable. The door is wide open to all possibilities. But that is a fact. Ergra, that stone exists. It was set up at that time. And you will find stones like that, not quite that large, but you will find stones like that all through the Pacific. They don't weigh 355 tons, but still, setting up a stone that weighs maybe 70 tons, that's, that's pretty impressive, especially because... Well, when you look at Nan Madol, we talked about earlier, how could Nan Madol have been that? It's 280 million, 280 million, I said billion before, I, I think I was wrong, the 280 million tons of magnetized basalt. No, there's no cranes or anything like that on Nan Madol even today, or Ponop. And yet somebody did it because there it is. Anything is possible. Now, the, the Tibetans, they definitely do have traditions of moving great weights through meditation. And chanting. There are some traditions even in North America amongst the Native American Indians, specifically the Ho-Chunk Indians. They used to refer to themselves as the Winnebago, and they now call themselves the Ho-Chunk. They talk about some of the stone sepulchers of their ancestors were built by the men, but the men could only build these stone structures when women surrounded the stone structures and were singing. And when the women stopped singing, the men could not build the stone structures. That's kind of interesting. Some kind of sonic technology involved? Who knows? Our technology is very mechanistic. Uh, it's something you can plot out and work with. But the technology of the Lemurians came from a different perspective, it would appear. Instead of, uh, instead of um, hard drive, they had soft drive. The soft drive was their, in their brains. And I think that that's what they utilize. The capacity of the human mind is beyond anything, I think, that we can imagine. And the Lemurians did imagine some of it and apparently applied it. When you think that the human brain, we do not use 95% of it. So if we are able to use more of our brain, perhaps that's the, where this technology comes about. We know the power of intention and the power of magnetized thought. One of the things that are uh, traditionally associated with the Lemurians is that they were great believers in mass meditation, where large numbers of people who at a certain time would focus their meditative um, capacities on one specific goal. Now, if you have an entire society that generation after generation has schooled themselves in the high levels of meditation and then applies it on a mass scale, I would say uh, many things are possible that uh, we would deem totally miraculous today. I think of the flash mob meditation groups that take place across the country, uh -huh. and those are fascinating, and it could be a good counterbalance to the Occupy movement. It would require, well, for example, today, yes, you're right. Uh, t today there are groups of people that are involved in prayer where hundreds or thousands of people will pray at a certain 
for, for a certain person who's, they only know this person's name, or they may have a photograph of them, but they don't know this person at all. And this person is going through uh, some physical trauma. And you get this, these groups of people, all they do is they pray, their own, uh, their own traditions, whether it's Christian or Muslim or, or, or pagan or whatever. Whatever they do is they access their, their prayer capacity, and these people uh, endure miracles. They, they come through miracles. I mean, it's, it's being done today. So yeah. I think that this is a, what the Lemurians uh, practiced and developed to an extraordinarily high degree. And that is probably the the core of all of their greatness was, as you mentioned at the beginning of this program, and you put your finger on it, the most important aspect of civilization is cooperation, and to coordinate, to cooperate. Without that, there is there's no cohesion, there is no society. That's why ours is disintegrating, because it's losing its capacity for human cooperation. We're becoming more self-indulgent and worrying about ourselves and society begins to disintegrate. Lemurians were people who firmly believed in cooperation and, and working together and in harmony. This didn't mean they dissolved their identity by any means, but it meant that if you want your society, you better cooperate with, with others. And that's what was the basis, I think, for their greatness. Well, it's fascinating, again, because on October 28th, we end the Mayan calendar phase of unity consciousness the ninth wave of unity consciousness. So I am optimistic that enough light workers and people are waking up to realize what unity consciousness is all about. The Lemurians had it. The Mayan calendar talks about it. Do you have any input on that connection? Yes, I, I think that uh, the Maya also understood this. Um, the Maya calendar talks about the endings and beginnings and when a society is so out of sync with its natural environment, when it gets out of sync with the forces that brought it into existence, then that society goes through a very rough time and in some cases is completely annihilated. Although the society is annihilated, uh, human beings are not. And so when we talk about the end of the Mayan calendar, which is supposed to take place, of course, next year, uh, winter solstice sunrise, uh, it could see the end of not just a cycle, but it could see the beginning of the end of our society, which would be okay, because our societies like ours have come and gone. Nature doesn't care about that. But the Maya calendar does not talk about the end of the world. It doesn't talk about the extinction of the human race. And the light work, what you call light workers, and there are light workers in all different forms and ways. These are the people who are going to bring in the next stage, and I think the next stage is going to be fabulous. Edgar Casey talked about uh, Atlantean souls, which were reincarnating beginning at the end of the 19th century and through the 20th century, and they, they were responsible for so much of the chaos and, and horror and disintegration of Western civilization, the world wars and, and the decline that we're facing now. And they were the Atlantean souls were coming back to to cause the same sort of chaos that they caused uh, so long ago in Atlantis. Well, now the, the Atlanteans are they're going through their end, their, the end of their phase, and now this new new reincarnation is taking place. And this is the Lemurian souls. When the Atlanteans have done their worst, uh, the Lemurian concept of of light and cooperation. Yeah, because it makes the most sense. 
uh, will come back. And I think that there is a, a great age ahead of us. I think we're going to go through an enormously difficult period that could shake our civilization to its, its absolute uh, fundamentals, uh, maybe destroy it completely, and uh, maybe it needs to, to terminate, and it will be rough for a lot of people. But those that survive it, not only physically but spiritually, will, will create the, a new golden age that's coming. Human beings are, are too young as a species to, to vanish. We haven't, we've only been around really for about uh, between 80 and 40,000 years, that's all. We have a long way to go, a lot of great things to do, but we've made a lot of mistakes, and this civilization might have been one of the biggest. So when we're talking unity consciousness and we know that we need to cooperate, do you believe we have the power to create our world? I believe that we are co-creators with God. I don't think that we're creators in the sense that we're responsible for everything. The, the, the concept of cooperation has to be extended from uh, society to cooperation with nature and cooperation with God. And I think that when we, we do that, we cooperate, uh, then we then we'll be successful and happy. I think yes. I think that we are we have to assume responsibility, but we're not gods. We have the capacity to be a lot better than we are, but nonetheless, and we have to see ourselves in the proper context. I think we are creators. We are co-creators, but we have to we have to follow our better instincts. What do you feel about Wall Street with the Occupy movement? Well, of course, uh, many of these people that are in the Occupy movement, they are certainly justified in their frustrations. But at the same time, if they were to, let's say they had all their desires fulfilled, that everything happened they wanted to, they're just a force of, of destruction. They wouldn't be able to replace the system with anything. They have, don't have a clue what they would replace the system with. I agree that the system is not flawed. It's probably self-destructive. But we need something to replace it with. And what we replace it with is, is not self-indulgence. Um, there was another golden age, not just Lemurian, that archaeologists uh, do agree with. And that was the Neolithic Age. And it lasted for 16 centuries. Can you imagine that? 16 centuries is from the time of the fall of Rome until our time today. And in those 16 centuries, the balance between human population and the natural environment was about perfect. You had a situation in which there were no cities, but you had many wonderful towns and villages spread all across the Fertile Crescent, which in those days was not the desert gravel pit that it appears today. Yeah. And 8,000 8, or more years ago, 10,000 years ago, after the end of the last ice age, it was a lush area. But people there were interested, were fanatically interested in developing agriculture. That was the big thing. And in developing seafaring techniques and arts. Uh, there were, this is another period of time where there were no armies of all the artifacts that have been found from that time, and thousands of artifacts have been found from the Neolithic Age. There are no weapons. There are tools. There are no cities, but there are villages. It, it, it appears that at this time, and there was a tremendous spiritual uh, life, Mother Earth was worshipped. It appears at this time that people achieved a balance between the, their numbers, their population, and the environment. That is key. That's essential. That's one of the big problems that we have, have today. I've been a student of history uh, since I was a boy, and I'm now in my 60s. And I can tell you that the major theme 
one of the major themes that emerges over and over again in all the civilizations I've studied and I've seen is the relationship between population and environment. That the moment that you get large numbers of people concentrated in an area, you have you have big problems because all of the the lower instincts that are in people flourish and they can hide. You you uh, crime proliferates. Civilizations are great, they do a lot of wonderful things, but they all go through the same patterns of birth, uh, youth, maturity, success, decline, and death, over and over, every single civilization, bar none. But those societies that that did not have urban centers, those societies that kept their populations within the natural environment, they lasted thousands of years, like the Neolithic Age like Lemuria, and there have been a couple of others, but not many, admittedly. And that's one of the lessons that we have to learn, that we cannot have, you cannot have cities in the sense that we have cities anymore. They have, look at Detroit. What a complete catastrophe. Uh, it's beyond belief. Or Gary, Indiana. There's a number of cities like this in the United States. I mean, they are absolute human failures with a capital F. And that's because... They created, one of the reasons was because their population got completely out of control. And if you can keep your numbers low, you distribute them sensibly, you won't have Detroit or Gary, Indiana. And I think that that's one of the lessons we must learn. We also have to have a national ethic. You know what the American dream used to be? Liberty. That's how America started. If you were to ask the average American in the 18th century, or even the 19th century, what's the American dream? They would have all answered the same thing, liberty. What's the American dream today? We know what that is, and look where that's got us. So we need a new ethic. It isn't just saying we need to be light workers and so on, although this is great. There has to be a time when somehow America pulls itself away from self-indulgence and realizes when the average American realizes that he can become very rich by giving up everything he has. <laughs> the more you give away, the more rich you become. And that's, that's the basis of true wealth. If you want to be wealthy, give up everything in harmony with the environment. Then you're going to have the society. And I think that's what the society that's, that's coming. I think it's the, what the society that's coming is the old society that we once had. It's as simple as that. Give up everything you have. Now, that doesn't mean you go out and you divest yourself of everything you have. It's the attitude of generosity and, and the attitude of cooperation, not hoarding. People have asked me, too, like, oh, what if 2012 comes, you know, and it's the end of civilization? What should we do? Should we start hoarding water and food and all that? No, that won't work. Sharing. What we'll do is, is you share. That's right, exactly. And you'll share your abilities, too. If you know how to be a good carpenter, well, there won't be any money anymore. Money won't do any good. It's not doing much good now either, obviously. So what is important is you're going to be able to barter what you have, the skills that you have. As far as practical survival skills, uh, that's, that's more important than hoarding ammunition or water or food or anything. But these are all speculations, but they're based upon what the Lemurians bequeathed to us. And what they bequeathed to us was that you can have a prosperous civilization, that you can have your technology, and, and you can have all the prosperity that you want, but you have to have some, some, fundamental, some fundamental 
goals set, the Lemurians would have set. And the number one goal was the compassion in the heart for fellow human beings. Doesn't mean you have to love everybody, because not everybody is lovable. I don't know that I'm particularly lovable, but at least I can be compassionate, and people should be compassionate towards me. And the same thing with, with all of them. The basic pre presumption that we have that we, in order for things to work, uh, we can't be striving entirely for our, ourselves alone all the time. And the other thing is that balance between population and environment. The Lemurians had no cities. The Lemurians had ceremonial centers, beautiful ceremonial centers, where the people would go often to, to celebrate uh, their spirituality or, or, or their arts or cultures and so on. The cities for the Lemurians were not cities. They were ceremonial centers that they went to. They lived in villages. And I think that that contributed significantly to the fact that they apparently had no use of police. Uh, there are traditions, for example, that they did have criminals from time to time. Every people produces a criminal element. That criminals were either uh, re-educated or else that they were deported. But there was no, apparently there was no criminal, there was no capital punishment. That uh, incorrigibles were deported, sent elsewhere. Interesting. Well, that brings to mind on Guam. Guam, uh, the Philippines used to deport their criminals to Guam. Really? It, it happens. I mean, every. Uh, this isn't to say that Lemuria was a, a perfect uh, culture because human beings are not perfect, but it's about the best we could do, and it was it was pretty good. It's like the small town uh, atmosphere, and uh, crime is low in small towns, uh, primarily because everybody knows everybody else, and it's harder to get away with things. And um, well, not primarily, but certainly that's not something to do with it. And same with Lemuria. You didn't need police states. You didn't need uh, jails, apparently. And uh, the Lemurians went through a phase in which uh, they appeared to be really isolated from the rest of the world when they when they found out these other civilizations were developing and these were other dynamic, aggressive civilizations. The Lemurians developed a Coast Guard, as it were, to sort of keep themselves sealed off. There's a, there are a lot of traditions regarding that. But eventually they, they sort of came out of their shell and they became missionaries. <laughs> They went to, they figured, like, well, these other civilizations look pretty dangerous and aggressive, so rather than just hiding from them, we'll see if we can calm them down. And so they sent missionaries to some of these places. And there are traditions of these Lemurian missionaries arising, uh, arriving in places like Arizona, interestingly enough, amongst the Pima Indians. They talk about that. Cool stuff. Some would say that Lemuria is rising again. Do you feel that we can achieve that again? Yes, I do. I really do. And, I mean, the, the very fact that you and I are talking about this and that apparently other people are, are keying into the, Lemur, the quieter Lemurian ideal, uh, I think, yeah, Lemuria and Atlantis are the most important civilizations in the past because they reflect our time. Uh, the Atlanteans were Americans. <laughs> the Atlanteans were very uh, aggressive. Outgoing. They, they, they knew they were the best in, in every regard, and and they wanted to impose themselves on everybody else, whether they liked it or not. They wanted to, uh, and they established this enormous empire. It was very powerful, very rich, and very arrogant. And uh, as a consequence, they self-destroyed themselves. You know, the Lemurians, of course, were precisely the exact opposite. We're not interested in the rest of the world, except how dangerous it was to them. And eventually, they tried, like say, to missionary uh, attempts with them. But the Lemurians were, had a completely different uh, point of view, 
Uh, they were not interested in conquering anybody else or having really much to do with anybody else except as uh, on a friendly basis. And they were more concerned about uh, the richness of the soul rather than the richness of the purse, it would appear. And I think that that's what we need to strive for. And you can have both. That's the great. That's the great secret. You know, you can have your material prosperity, but you you have to keep it in balance. Like the Greeks said, everything in moderation. This doesn't mean you have to live the ascetic life and be a monk. It's good. That's only good for a few people that are really dedicated to that sort of life. But for the average person, you can have your your prosperity and, and everything you want. But you you also have to have your spiritual prospect. We are basically spiritual human spiritual creatures. We're not materialistic creatures. That's what distinguishes. That's what really distinguishes human beings from the other animals more than anything else. Really, it's not our technology. You know, because actually, animals have technology too. Uh, chimpanzees they know how to use sticks as, as tools, and you know, otters know how to use stones to crack open uh, shells. I mean, what's the difference between that and our technology? It's matters of degree, that's all. What distinguishes human beings is, is our capacity to understand uh, the Creator, as it were, and to have a relationship, a relationship, a co-creating life with God. And the animals, they just live within the will of God, but we, we really have the capacity to understand and uh, make a choice. That's that's fabulous. That's our only real distinction. To really remember who we are. Not just to remember who we are, but to to become who we are. Mm-hmm. To be what we are, and we're not we're not living the authentic life. You know, we're we're chasing our tails. You know, it's like Joseph Campbell used to say: live the authentic life. You know, that's that's the important. What's what is your truth? You know, find out what your truth is, and then live it. Now, it's hard to do in this society because it costs money. And we have obligations and so forth, so it's a shame. It's a difficult situation here. Things got to change. It is changing. The Occupy Wall Street thing and so forth, you know, it's rage. You can understand that, but it's anarchy. It's just uh, not focused. You need something to replace it with. You were talking about Atlantis. Can you talk about Egypt? Did Egypt arise after the fall of Atlantis? The beginnings of Egypt are in the mid of the 4th millennium B.C., in other words, like around 3,500 years before Christ. Uh, there were the first uh, cities in Egypt, and then they were finally unified into a nation um, by a fellow by the name of Horaha and his, follow- his immediate followers, King Narmer. Actually, King Narmer was the very first pharaoh of a united Egypt, and that's about 3,100 years before Christ. These dates are really interesting because they coincide with global catastrophes that took place at that time that geophysicists now recognize when a comet, uh, which is known today as Comet Enki, not related to (laughs) planet Enki, named after Rudolf Enki, who was a uh, Swiss astronomer in the 18th century who found it. But this great comet made a very close pass to the Earth around 3100 B.C., and it caused tremendous disruption on Earth because it showered a barrage of meteoric material that's crashed under the surface of our planet and into the oceans. This had an effect on Atlantis, which had been around already for well over a thousand years by that time, more likely several thousand years. And although Atlantis was not destroyed at this time, it was uh, to a large extent evacuated, and the people that left went to various places in the world, and some of them went to the Nile Valley, specifically the Nile Delta. That's where Egyptian civilization began. 
And the Egyptians themselves talk about their origins in a very Atlantean way. There was an Egyptian historian by the name of Manetho. And Manetho, in the 3rd century uh, BC, collected all of these traditions that the Egyptians had believed in for thousands and thousands of years. And Manetho told how a god by the name of Thaut, T-H-A-U-T, he's also known as Thoth, the Greeks called him Mercury, the Romans called, uh, the, rather, the, the Greeks called him Hermes, the Romans called him Mercury. And he lived on an island out in the Atlantic Ocean with the gods, he and his fellow gods and human beings. And this island was called Sekret Aru, which means field of reeds. And they call it that because it was a place of great wisdom. The reed was used as a pen. So if you had a whole field of pens, it was considered a place of great literacy. And on this island, the first human beings were created. The island sank because of the iniquity of its inhabitants, and the survivors fled from Sekhar Aru, the field of reeds, and landed at the Nile Delta. And they were the ones who brought civilization. Thout himself brought along the emerald tablets. And on these tablets were inscribed all of the information necessary to create civilization. And they said that these followers of Thout and his golden tablets intermarried with the peoples of the Nile Valley and created dynastic civilization. And that's what the Egyptians said. That's a very Atlantean story. And as a postscript to that, very interesting, on the other side of the world, in another valley, the Valley of Mexico, the Aztecs talked about their civilization beginning on an island, which they referred to as Atlan, A-Z-T-L-A-N. That's a very interesting name. And Atlan... The civilization that started there and the survivors who arrived from Aztlan to the Valley of Mexico is called the Field of Reeds, <laughs> the exact same title used by the ancient Egyptians on the other side of the world. Wow. Atlan or Sekret Aru, a Field of Reeds, these are all various names for old Atlantis. And when Atlantis uh, was wiped out by this uh, natural catastrophe, which geophysicists, like I say, admit to you, it happens around the end of the 4th millennium B.C. Survivors spread east and west. You have to dig these things out. And, and mainstream historians will not discuss any of this because it's, it's politically incorrect. It says politically incorrect. It's the A word. And it's just not, not to be discussed. Talking about the Lemurian technology, you had mentioned stem cells. Mm -hmm. And there's proof of that stem cell technology at some of these monuments that are on these Pacific Islands. I know, it's just fabulous. It's, uh, it's mind-blowing. Um, everybody knows about Easter Island. We'll start with there. Easter Island got its name in the early 1700s when a Dutch captain uh, rediscovered Easter Island on Easter Sunday. I think it was 1772. And so he just, got, he just said, uh, well, we'll call that Easter Island. Its original name was Tepito Tehenua, which means the navel of the world. And our listeners are probably familiar with something called Moais. The Moais are these great colossal statues that you see scattered all over. There's about a thousand of them scattered all over this small island. And there are these strange, gaunt, rather haughty-looking figures, all pretty much look the same. And it looks like they're mostly just heads. Well, that's because they've been buried all this time. Actually, they are almost full figures when you dig them out of the ground. 
and they're set up on set on platforms called Ahu. And you can see that their sides are sculpted with hands, with arms, and their hands go all the way down and orient around their navels. That is, uh, and their navels are prominently displayed on all these Moai statues. Well, that of course fits in with the name of this thing, the the navel of the world. That's what it was called, Tepito Tehenna. Well, what's going on there? The high priests of the ancient Easter Islanders, most Easter Islanders no longer exist. They were exterminated by the Chileans and the Peruvians. They were enslaved, and so that's a terrible story. But the ancient Easter Islanders, before the arrival of the Europeans, uh, kept stone boxes, as it were. And when a child was born, an infant was just born, the navel string was cut off, of course. And the navel string was enshrined, was kept in one of these stone boxes with the child's name on it. Now, of course, these people were literate. They had a written language. It hasn't been deciphered yet because most of the written, the libraries of this ancient people were deliberately destroyed by uh, Christian missionaries. There's only like about four of these so-called talking boards left. But in any case, that's what, what the high priest used to do. They would store the navel string, the birth string, from the child in these boxes. And then this child, when it began to mature, if it had any health problems of any kind throughout its life, would go to consult the shaman or the, the high priest, who would then use somehow the child's original navel string to affect all kinds of health cures. That's really interesting because all that was considered so much superstition and these stone boxes or drawers were discarded and the navel strings were thrown away. But now it's understood, of course, that stem cell research uses uh, the navel string, the, uh, the chemical residue within the navel string to affect stem cell research and the treatment, the genetic treatments that are underway today. Not only was this uh, navel string preserved on Easter Island, it was preserved on a number of Polynesian islands, and it's still regarded very highly today, the preservation of the navel string. And all, only on these islands where there were ruins, where there were large ruins of a f former culture that had arisen there. So. It would appear, and I go into greater detail on this in the book, I've spent several chapters on it here, it would appear that the, the Easter Islanders and their and the Lemurian predecessors grasped the relationship between human health, genetic engineering, and the, the preservation of the navel string. These navel strings, by the way, were never used in, in uh, uh, ritual activity. So they don't appear to have been just uh, items that were part of some ceremony. They were practically used somehow. It represents a lost science. It's not the only lost science in the Pacific. There's a very small island, very a series of small islands. I can't remember their names even just off the top of my head. But there are a series of small islands in the Pacific, I believe in the Western Pacific, in which the natives on this island are able to 
They use a mathematical system that can count up into the many millions. And there's no, no use for this people who have lived on this island for time out of mind to grasp such numerical calculations. It's a highly evolved, a highly evolved mathematical system that has been bequeathed to them by a former people. They've preserved it. They know how basically to use it. But they have no use for it whatsoever. But if you're dealing with uh, things like Luzon and the greatest uh, food factory in the world, the Banawi rice fields, where you're going to need some kind of a calculation system. That's another heritage, another loss of lost mathematical science that belonged to the Lemurians. So if we're not so busy battling each other and we're working together in cooperation, it only makes natural sense that this technology will come back. It will. Technology will be uh, diverted from uh, primarily military purposes or largely to military purposes to, to productive purposes. You know, they, well, I don't, I don't want to get too political here because it's, it's not my place to do that, but I am trying to bring up historical parallels with our own time. Otherwise, what's the sense of history? I mean, it's nice to know your story and it's entertaining and all that, but if you can't really apply it, to your own time. If you can't, if it can't help you to understand the times in which you live, uh, it's lost. I think it's it's impetus. In your book, you you go into Hotu Matua. Tell us who this person was. Hotu Matua was the uh, uh, founding father of Easter Island, and the Easter Island Islanders uh, told this story to. Um, Captain Rogovine, he was the Dutch uh, captain who, who found Easter Island in the 18th century, and to others who visited later. They preserved the story of Hatomatua. Hatomatua was a high functionary on, on uh, uh, this kingdom called um, Mare Renga. They, that's how the Easter Islanders referred to Lemuria, it would appear. Mare Renga was this great kingdom, they say, that existed long ago. And on this kingdom, uh, people had developed all kinds of uh, magic and sorcery and could do all kinds of great things. And they had huge boats, just gigantic ships, they're described. And Hotomatawa was told that there would, uh, in, a, in a dream that somebody had, uh, or a, a prognostication, a prophecy, that Mare Renga would be destroyed someday and that Mare Renga would uh, suffer destruction at the hands of falling stars and so forth. And so Mare, uh, and so Mare Renga, before it collapsed, before it sank into the sea, uh, Hotomatua, his family and followers, got into their enormous ships, and they sailed away. And as they sailed away, Mare Renga, the prophecy of its doom was fulfilled, and Mare Renga sank into the sea. That's interesting. This is the story that the Easter Islanders told. They didn't read Churchward's book. Uh, they didn't know anything about Lemuria uh, from uh, sources that we know today. This is their own independent story of a great flood that wiped out a former kingdom. That Mare Renga, when, before it was lost, Hatumato was entrusted with its most sacred item. And that was the naval stone. That was the stone. It was a sort of a quartzite stone. And this stone was carried along with uh, uh, provisions and the family and followers of Hatumatua, and they landed at this island. And they set up, the very first thing they did when they landed at this island was they set up their naval stone, their sacred stone. And then they named the island Tepito Tehanawa, which was the naval of the world. And Hotomatwa, um, 
used the technology of uh, Maori Renga, the former civilization, to create Easter Island, and that's the basic story of Hatomatua. And these stories are confirmed in Hawaii and Tahiti. It's interesting how other places across the Pacific come and refer to them in their stories. And isn't there a connection with Eastern Island and Egypt? The connection between Easter Island and other parts of the world is astounding. Uh, and, and, and beyond uh, understanding, except in a Lemurian context. I mentioned before the the Moai, which are these great stone statues. Uh, they're one block, and they're sculpted with their arms hanging by their sides, and their long hands and fingers oriented towards their navel. You don't find that sort of design anywhere in the world except one place which has been recently found in the mid-1990s, a place in southern Turkey was excavated. It's called Gebekli Tepe. And Gebekli Tepe has these statues, kind of like T-shaped statues, with long arms by their side, and the long fingers and hands gravitate towards the navel position on these anthropomorphic T-shaped columns. The name Gebekli Tepe means the navel hill, or the, the hill of the navel in Turkish. It's always known, been known as that. Gebekli Tepe is the oldest building in the world. It goes back over 10,000 years ago. It's a complete shock to the archaeologists who have excavated it because it's a highly advanced, beautifully sculpted place uh, that should not be there because human beings were only hunter-gatherers, we're told, at that time. There's every indication that this place, Gebekli Tepe in southern Turkey, is an astronomical observatory. Uh, some of the, the large T-shaped structures are oriented to various celestial phenomena, but the, the, the link between Easter Island and Gebekli Tepe is very interesting. Here, Easter Island was originally called the navel of the world. There's all this emphasis on the navel. Here we are in Turkey over 10,000 years ago. The place is called the Hill of the Navel. These sculpted T-shaped columns have long arms and fingers oriented towards the navel. Is it conceivable that there's some kind of a link on the other side of the world between Little Easter Island and Turkey? It seems far more than circumstantial. What I think the only way we can explain something like that is that both Easter Island and Gebekli Tepe were independent recipients of the culture in between, which was Lemuria. Lemuria bequeathed its naval technology, as it were, its naval religion towards both East and West. And it landed in Gebekli Tepe and also in Easter Island. It shows a tremendous antiquity of, the, of, of Lemuria, which was already highly advanced more than 10,000 years ago. The connection with Egypt seems to be less direct. The Egyptians also used the word mu, to symbolize water. As a matter of fact, that's the, that's the word for water in ancient Egyptian is mu. They also talked about a, a time uh, long before uh, the arrival of the first human beings in Egypt 
in which there was a, a civilization that had suffered a, a series of uh, inundations. But beyond that, the, the most interesting thing I think we see is your interest in the word alchemy. Alchemy comes from the ancient Egyptian word alchem, which means to transform, interestingly enough. So the, the origins of alchemy, the most immediate origins of alchemy, must be in Egypt because it is an Egyptian name. And the Egyptians were involved in transformation. They were mostly involved in human transformation, Transma transformation from the base matter or the lead matter of, of human uh, selfishness uh, to the, the gold of enlightenment. Does any of this ever present an extraterrestrial assistance? These things we've talked about are so fantastic that nothing can be ruled out. But I must tell you, in all honesty, I have not found anything like that. Um, the only point in that regard that I see is in the readings of Edgar Cayce, who talked about a time in which the Atlanteans had developed a level of psychic ability so great that they could communicate with uh, intelligences beyond our world. Now, whether he meant actual extraterrestrials or he meant uh, something in the spirit world, I don't think anybody is entirely sure. But beyond that, I, to be quite honest, I, I'm interested in, in learning the truth as best I can. I don't have all of the truth. I'm following the breadcrumbs. And so far, I don't see the, an extraterrestrial uh, component in any of this. But I, I do not rule it out. I think uh, as, a, as a, someone who's trying to be scientific in this regard, you have to leave your mind open to everything. Thank you so much for being here. Do you want to close with anything that you find the most fascinating about any most current information that you've got from any of your writers coming into this most recent letter that I received from a colleague in India that came out of the, the blue a few days ago, he uh, has read my book also, and uh, he agrees with, with most of it, although he says that the real emphasis on Lemuria as a landmass was primarily uh, in uh, the Indian Ocean. And I, I would be open to that. I, I certainly don't have a, a hard uh, line on that. Uh, it's possible that the majority of its population was centered on a landmass in the Indian Ocean, which no longer exists. Because it's not just theoretical, because uh, there have been at least two uh, actual cities that have been found underwater off the coast of India over the past what, not even ten years now. So these cities may be part of that original Lemurian landmass. As interesting as that is, it still doesn't uh, uh, concern me as much as the as the fact that the Lemurians were primarily a people rather than a territory and that they were they spread their culture uh, across these islands whether it was in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific and then when they lost those islands because of tsunamis and other uh, geologic catastrophes uh, they went beyond uh, that area and impacted the rest of the world and I, I think their world heritage is something that seems uh, we can always learn more about and always are learning more things about well, thank you so much, Frank Joseph, for this conversation today on Lemuria. And here's to Lemuria Rising. Here's to Lemuria Rising. Hopefully our descendants will be the Lemurians. <laughs> thank you for having me on. And thank you, too, for listening. 
If you've enjoyed this program, please share it with your friends so we can get this important information out to the world. This program is supported by donations by listeners like you. Your support allows us to bring you fresh information that is empowering, inspiring, and uplifting. It's also information you won't find so commonly in the mainstream media. Thank you for your support, and I now leave you with music from the universe. This music was literally created by the universe as mathematical equations were assigned to musical notes. The result is this beautiful music. Acoustichealth.com. 
These magical online gatherings give you valuable insights, exercises, and channeled information on the great shift of the ages. Visit AcousticHealth.com and click on Online Retreats or check out our retreat archive and download the recording. Life-changing online retreats by AcousticHealth.com Enjoy a free meditation download on how to activate 42 new chakra systems available to us now. Visit AcousticHealth.com and click on Meditations. That's AcousticHealth.com. Thank you and enjoy. Enjoy. 